Hey guys, it's Nate. Before we start the show, small thing. I had to record this on my phone, unfortunately, because the news came in after the episode was already recorded. But I just got word that Gloria Steinem is going to come on the show. December 15th, I'm having an interview with her. I have a half hour, and I want to include your questions, if you have any. So, if you have any questions for Gloria fucking Steinem, uh-huh, send them in to readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. That's readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com, and I will try to include them in my interview. Again, send them in before Tuesday, December 15th. Okay, here's the show. Welcome to episode 41 of Reading Aloud. Wow, I've done 41 of these things. That's incredible. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of the podcast, and we have a really interesting episode for you today. We have a conversation with Jeff Levine, who runs the TV department at Random House. It's a really interesting talk because Jeff peels back the curtain a little bit into the process of book and television development. He's the guy who reads things and then wonders if they can translate to the screen. And how does one make a decision like that? Who's involved? What's the cash payout like? I had questions, and Jeff had plenty of answers. So we'll get to that. But before then, I wanted to talk briefly about Ryan Knighton, Ryan Knighton is a friend of the podcast. Um, he was on way back in episode 14 when I was still trying to find my podcasting sea legs. Fantastic performer and writer. I found him on This American Life. He had a very famous episode. He's done a couple of episodes. And then a really great story on The Moth. Um, but he has this story that was in an episode of This American Life where he gets lost in a hotel room. He's blind, and he is lost in a hotel room. He cannot find his way out, and it is fucking hilarious, and he's so funny and smart and charming and self-aware. It's just a great conversation. Um, Way back in episode 14, I had drinks with him. I bring him up because he's in town. He's pitching uh, some movies and some TV ideas. And he lives in Vancouver, but he's down for a couple days. We had beers last night, and he's just such a great guy. A really fun hang, and so bright and sweet and funny. Um, someone you should get to know more of. So you can follow him at on Twitter, and you can also listen to his stuff on uh, This American Life online. Just search Ryan Knighton. And the story about his hotel room drama is just fucking priceless. And then he also talked to me at length on Reading Aloud about his process. Uh, And that's uh, episode 14. A great episode overall because it also had Megan Amram reading from her book and also my buddy Joe McIntyre reading an excerpt from All Souls. Uh, So that is a great episode. Uh, So check that out because I like Ryan Knighton a lot. Also, next live show, it's going to be the last one for a few months. I'm taking some time off uh, from the live show experience. Live show December 13th, Sunday at 7.30 at the UCB Franklin, five bucks. We have a great lineup. Seth Morris as Bob Duca. 
will be there. John Daly, Steve Agee, Emily Maya Mills. It's a great cast. Uh, so come down. It's $5. You can't lose. Sunday, December 13th, 7.30 at UCB Franklin here in Hollywood. So go on the UCB website, pick up a ticket, and we'll see you there. Also, book club this month. It approaches. Station 11, Emily St. John Mandel. She was a finalist for the National Book Award. This book is a New York Times bestseller, and people are raving about this baby. So go pick it up and interact with us here at the podcast. Read the book. And send us in your thoughts. Tell us uh, what you thought about it, what you liked and didn't like specifically at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com, readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Send in your thoughts and be a part of the show. So now we're getting to Jeff. Jeff is going to talk at length. I'm going to ask him questions. He's going to answer those questions. So here's Jeff talking to us about the business of books. Jeff Levine is my guest, by the way. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Uh, you came to, you were in film development before, right? At Spring Creek? Correct. And you were doing, um, I have some of uh, part of your resume in front of me. You'd worked on uh, Too Big to Fail for HBO, which won like uh, 175 Emmys. Um, Nominated for 11, but okay, a, yes. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Uh, this is where I leave you, Blood Diamond, uh, countless others. How did you get to Random House from Spring Creek? You know, the timing was just right. I had worked um, uh, for a number of producers who always took the book business very seriously in terms of uh, uh, source material for movies or TV yeah. or whatever. <clears throat> We were embarking on, and uh, so the opportunity. I'm trying to remember. I, I had met Peter Gathers, who runs Random House Studios, um, and f in the New York office um, uh, earlier in my career, because Peter is also a, a screenwriter and a novelist himself. So um, we had met, and then a friend of mine at Random House had told me that they were starting a division out here specifically to turn um, – to develop television, television series. <clears throat> and given the change in the marketplace and the rise in the yeah. television business and particularly in premium cable and the streaming services and all that kind of stuff. So it seemed like a, a good opportunity and a good fit because yeah. I've always worked from books and – take them seriously as source materials. You had? Yes. All right, because that was my next question. What is your history? Because I'd assumed you were, you were a film guy, you were in film production, and you just sort of happened to be now in the book industry, but you've been in the book business really for a long time. It's not the book business. It's always been um, in uh, working for either a studio like Castle Rock where I was a, an executive or at Turner Broadcasting where I worked, but I always used books as sources. So mm. I wouldn't say that I was in the book business, but I always uh, took um, books very seriously in terms yeah. of, of, you know, the starting place for yeah. making a movie or TV. But you were plugged into the book world because yes. you, you had to be. Yes, it was that's an asset true. To yes, your... and I actually started in New York. I was um, in the New York office for the Samuel Goldwyn Company when um, uh, I first started in the business, wow. which was a long time ago. So I started by scouting books, and there's a small community of of scouts. Wow, that um, 
their job is to find, you know get their hands on stuff really early yep. and um, send it out to the West Coast and yeah and that was my job and then Sam um, offered me a job um, in California um, and uh, so I decided to move I got Sam got Goldwyn. Goldwyn Jr. Yes, not the, I'm not that old. So, where, where, yes. Yeah, where was the where is the the office? The office uh, it was in Century City. Okay, and I mean in New York. When you were in New York, where was the... 57th Street and 7th Avenue. Okay. It was across from Carnegie Hall. Wow. Yeah. How old were you when you first got that job? Was that your first big job? It was. I, I was looking... I was actually looking for a job in publishing, and happily I didn't, I didn't get one because I would have been even poorer at the time. So um, I... Uh, it was. I had gone to graduate school, um, decided to... Get a job, yeah. After not pursuing a career as an academic, and yep. um, and uh, yeah, I was twenty two. Wow, I think. And how did you get that job? How did you How did you find your way into? The it offices? was through a friend yeah. who knew. Yeah. Actually, my very first job was working in industrial films. I had gotten a job as an assistant to somebody who they were making non broadcast industrial films and okay. advertising that sort of thing, and so. And I segued to a job as an assistant for the head of development on the East Coast of the Samuel Goldwyn Company. So, wow, holy moly! That's um, that's how I started, um, and I read a lot. And uh, you know, the New York film community is small, and yeah. so um, when I was offered the position out here, my wife was uh, girlfriend at the time. Actually, was working in publishing, and she was ready to leave uh, that and. Uh, so got married and came to California. Yeah. yeah. We're, but it, it seems to me like I see that world as a guy who enjoys reading but has no connection at all to the publishing world. That world just seems so um, intimidating and overwhelming. I feel like it's all, um, you know, literary muckety-mucks, having cocktail parties. It's like, it's always perpetually like 1965 in my head and they're dressed fabulously and they're all having conversations about the authors that they love and the authors that they hate and resent and why is Salinger up in Cornish, New Hampshire hiding in a bunker and <laughs> they're all just amazing and creative people. Yeah, it's a business. Yeah, right. You know, so, um, sure, there's <laughs> a little bit of that um, and, uh, but I think uh, that's... Uh, uh, somewhat a romantic view. Yes, um, absolutely. You know, uh, it's um, it, it's a business like any other, and um, and it's particularly, I guess, now the number of publishers has shrunk because of the just the competition, and um, uh, so you know uh, they're out to yeah make money and sell books. I mean, yeah. I'm of course you know, so. That's that's really what the <laughs> that's the uh, that's the MO. yeah that's the end. I have a this is a, a an enormous question that's maybe impossible to answer, but um, the publishing business is uh, fraught right now for a lot of different reasons, and I'm wondering where you think it'll be. And this is this is less about you know de- development of of source material into films or television, and a bigger question about. About book publishing, and for people who love books, where are we going to find ourselves in ten years? Um, whether bookstores, I, how do I form this question? Are we screwed? 
Are we going to run out of books? You know, I don't think so. I okay. really, I really don't. I think that um, I read something recently, and I'm I'm certainly not an expert in this area at, at all. My my expertise, and to the extent that I would call it that, is yeah. from you know doing book adaptations and and working in, in film television development and uh, yeah. production. But um, I think I read something recently that the <clears throat> The ebook business had plateaued to a certain extent, but actual reading of you know physical books is still you know going along and chugging along Good. strong. So I I I think that you know everyone is always you know sort of talking about the demise of publishing and that no one reads anymore and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I, I I know that the brick and mortar bookstores are yeah you know that's that's a, a tough business and yeah. um, real estate is so expensive in many places that it's hard to maintain that but I think that the you know books will be here and people love to read and yeah. and I and I um I don't take a dark view of Thank that. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate <laughs> your positive energy. No, it's I think it's true. I I mean stories will that's eternal. People will always need compelling stories. Yeah. And there's nothing better. And the charm of having a book in your hand is just that will always that will never change. To be able to smell the paper and to have that in your hand, I, I, I mean, I'm assuming, I guess they said the same thing about newspapers 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but I just, I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to stay positive, <laughs> and I hope, I hope you're exactly right. I think you should. What motivated the creation of, because uh, there was a, there, so there's Random House Studios. There's a studio, yes? And it's well, film. it's a division within yeah. within this gigantic publisher. Yeah, um, and they the Peter Gathers who who is runs the division. You know, saw an opportunity to to make some money this way, in this sense, and and maximize you know the intellectual property that we have access to, um, uh, and you know and. With, through different medium, um, yeah. So, and again, there was a small um, film division. We had a deal at Focus Features, um, and uh, for which we made a couple of movies. Um, and <clears throat> Peter saw what was going on in TV and decided yeah. to expand the operation and hire someone out here, myself and. Uh, and really, you know, try to get into the television business in the series, limited series, that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, so the motivation is to, you know, to try to sort of promote the books. It's a different way to promote the books. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a real advantage to the authors if if something goes. And yeah. Um, it's always nice to have a book or a you know literary property or some uh, something like that to work from in terms of when you go out and try to develop something for television. Um, that's a nice thing to have. Uh, and uh, um, so there was an opportunity to, to yeah. expand the business. I yeah. Think, so. Does it fall to you to have to convince an author that his or her content should be expanded onto whether it's, I mean, in your case, it's it's television. Do you have to do some convincing and massaging, or if, or is everything that crosses your desk already has been okayed by the author? No, 
not it, it, yes, it, it is my job to do that. So you have to call? Yes. Holy shit. I can't imagine how difficult and precious those conversations. Well, it's, it's you know, in, to a great extent, they're happy to hear it. Um, you know, it's an opportunity right. for a, right. um, an author to see his or her work, you know, translated into something that could yeah. be, you know, really valuable, um, you know, financially and otherwise. And, and, you know, it's not a business frequently they, they know, so it's a little bit of a mystery. And so I have right. to kind of talk to them, <laughs> talk them through that, all that. But, and there's also this, you know, if they're in New York or wherever and not in Hollywood and not familiar with it, there's a kind of like, well, what are those people like out there? And what are they going to do to my book? And yeah. so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of that uh, that goes on. And, uh, you know, um, it's not as difficult as one might think, but mm. I think that the, um, you know, it's it's a process, and they have to understand the process. And 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 uh, part of my job is helping to explain that. And yeah, and uh, and also protecting what they've done. I mean, part of the conversation is about, you know. It will change when it goes from being a book to a movie or a book to a television series, and how how it'll it'll be okay. You know, you will always have your book, and it will always be huh. what it is. Huh. But in order to, we had this conversation with um, uh, with Jonathan Tropper, whose um, oh, yeah. novel um, "This Is Where I Leave You," Paula Weinstein and I turned into a, a movie, a great with, movie. Uh, Sean Levy directing and yeah. producing as well. Um, and there was a lot that was cl- done in the adaptation. A lot of the backstory was cut and all sorts of, you know, things were needed to translate that into a movie. But the book is always there, though Jonathan will always have the novel that he wrote. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, Jonathan also wrote the screenplay. And I have a follow-up to that because I, yes. because so many authors are very precious about their material, mm-hmm. it's clever that you, that you may begin these conversations by saying your book is always there. Mm-hmm. Nothing will change about your book. You wrote your book. You were in complete creative control, and that will always ex- exist. And someone can always go to a bookstore or library and pick up that book. That's right. But there is something very scary about putting, especially if it's like a memoir or something, in someone's hands that you don't know. And I'm assuming a big part of those conversations and emails, so these correspondences you have with these writers, is putting them at ease. And letting them know that we're not going to run a train through their story just to make a buck. Yes, that is that is that is part of the conversation. Yeah, um, and it's also particularly in the case, of, you know, in, in my case because I do work for um, the publisher as right. well. Uh, and you know, part of my job is protecting the author and protecting the you know the vision of or the integrity rather. Let me say of, yeah. of what what the author initially intended, even if, you know, changes are obviously going to need to be made. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's a partnership. It's a, a level of trust that needs to be developed. It's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's an ongoing conversation. I tend to like to keep the author apprised of what's going on because frequently a book will be optioned <clears throat> television, let's say, and we'll then 
start looking around for a writer to do the, you know, write the pilot. Yeah. Um, and that could take a while. And then, you know, the author's sitting there in Minnesota or wherever and thinking, what happened here? <laughs> what is going, what on? Is going <laughs> on? Yep. And, you know, um, so I'll <laughs> give a call. I called just the other day to um, – a writer, an author um, whose book we optioned, and we've been looking for a, a writer to uh, to come on and you know and write the pilot, and just to sort of keep them apprised of what's going on. And like here, this is happening. We've sort of yeah. narrowed the field to a couple of writers, and we're excited about them. But you know, uh, we're not there yet, and so that was. And he was happy to hear it. So because I bet. it was like you know, hello. Yeah, like, why well, I haven't heard happened? from you guys? What's yeah? So <laughs> that was you know, uh, but that's that's also part of the job too. I was this this podcast uh, is very Franzen heavy. I spent a lot of time talking about Franzen. We have a monthly book club, and uh, we did the corrections a couple months ago. We just did purity. And I was very surprised a couple years ago when he okayed because he's notoriously prickly mm -hmm. that he okayed. I mean, granted, it was HBO mm -hmm. and Scott Rudin, et cetera, et cetera, but he, that he allowed um, the corrections to be adapted. And granted, he was writing it, so he well, that helps. was in control. Yeah. But I was really surprised because he had all that shit with Oprah, and I just thought that he would, like, I was very surprised. I, I, I've... I wonder if there are any writers that you can think of that you don't even bother calling because there's no way that he or she is going to say yes. Their stuff is way too precious and they're way too protective of it and it's not even worth reaching out. Or do you think anyone is able to be? Well, I'll always make the call. Yeah. You know, I prefer that they say no rather than me edit it for them because Smart. that's my job as a producer to try to get that thing. And there's always this sort of glimmer of hope. Well, you know, they'll listen to me. Right. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there are there are authors. I don't know that I can name them off the top of my head. This is simply going to say yeah. no. But um, there are those that are probably more challenging than others to deal with and sure. not interested or whatever. And that's fine. That's their prerogative. But I'll – yeah, I'm, I'll always make the call. Yeah. Because particularly if I fall in love with something. And, sure. Um, Absolutely. And express that and they'll say, well, that's that's really nice. Thank you. And, you know – I'm glad you liked the book, and no. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> you know? I had this happen to me a couple of years ago. I absolutely fell in love with Andre Debus's memoir, Townie. Mm -hmm. Did you read that? I haven't, no. Uh, it's spectacular and heartbreaking and moving and electric and all the things that you, that you want to see um, come to life on screen. It's all there. And I'm also, it's, I'm also from Massachusetts, and it's a like, working-class Massachusetts memoir, and, and so I said, okay, I'm just like you just said, I, this guy's probably not interested in I, who the fuck am I to reach out, but let him say no. Right. So I reached out to him and had a couple conversations with him on the phone and chatted with him. And, uh, and one of the most amazing things he said to me was like, you know, Nate, um, I like movies, but I don't love them. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't need this to happen. I have kids and I want to put them through private school and that's not cheap. So I'm willing to listen to anything that uh, 
that's worth talking about if, if, we're, if we're talking about enormous amounts of money. But he didn't love movies. And he wasn't, he had no interest in seeing it on the big screen. And it was also about his own life. But we said, I said to him, uh, you can write the script. And he'd never written a screenplay before, mm-hmm. which is pretty silly of me to even offer that. But whatever, I was dangling everything I could. <laughs> and he finally said, yes, okay, let's, let's do this. I'm willing to do this. Right. And, um, and we had a like phone call handshake agreement. And then three weeks later, the, uh, the attorneys reached out and, um, they and the the conversations that we had had were very different than the conversation that we had with the attorney, who was assuming that it was going to be a like a di- like a big Disney version of that you know a fifty million dollar budget and this enormous thing. And we're like, no, probably like four or five million, and we'll right. you know shoot it. We'll have twenty days to shoot the thing, and right. but you'd be in control, and it'd be uh, artful. But that all those numbers that this attorney started asking for were just astronomical. Yeah. As if, Huh. And I what wondered. A surprise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget what the, attor- the attorney. The attorney's name was Joel something. Big shark of a writer's attorney, <laughs> Joel. Oh God! Every every person I met that I talked to my attorney about, like, oh, that guy's a fucking asshole. That guy's just the worst. Um, but he's very protective of his clients and protects his clients and asks for the moon. Um, but anyway, I don't know how I get on that story. I tried to adapt something and my heart was broken. So sometimes that happens. <laughs> um, how, uh, how profitable can a television series, and I know it differs from, you know, ABC Family to Amazon to Hulu to HBO to NBC. It, all those numbers change depending on where you, where you are. But if an author um, is lucky enough to have uh-huh. his or hers work adapted, what kind of money do they make? Yeah, it drives book sales. It's yeah. really no, it's a good thing. I yeah. think uh look, you know, Game of Thrones occupies a pretty high, you know, Whoa. place on the New York Times bestseller list and I think um Oh my gosh. Gone Girl. All you know, you can yeah. look at all of those things and leftovers. You, know, you bet. So, yeah. um in a one-off situation, you know, we I, I worked on a, a movie for HBO called Too Big to Fail and you know, we it's never a a bad thing for the book. In that case, I don't know that it drove a lot of book sales, but certainly Andrew Sorkin made money on the option and yeah. worked with us very closely on it. And um, so, yes, there's money to be made there. Yeah. And uh, particularly in an ongoing series situation because then the, there's a level of awareness that is just uh, phenomenal. Yeah. And will really help an author. Sure. Um, I, Tom Parada was another guy that I was surprised that he, I mean, again, it was HBO um, mm-hmm. and Peter Berg, I think, directed the, did Peter I, Berg direct the pilot? I, uh, I feel like he did. Maybe. Maybe yeah. not. Um, but I was, because he's had so many, I'm, are you a Tom Parada fan? I am Tom Parada fan. Yeah, me too. Uh, Tom, yeah, and I, and I, I really admire his work and I, um, but he, you know, his stuff has been adapted before, so he has been through the process. Election, and, right. And Little Children. Oh, yeah, Little Children, of course. So, you know, he's more familiar with the process Sabier. and it's not as strange, spooky, weird, yeah. whatever. And uh, and I think this is an opportunity for him to get involved. I know that he's – I believe he's a writer on the show. I don't, I don't know anything to do with it. But, yeah. But, yeah um, so Is he a nice guy? I liked him when I met him. It was years ago, but I thought he was a super nice guy. Where did you meet him? 
I met him at a reading. I went to a reading of um, you know, there was a bookstore in Brentwood that you, I don't know if it's still there, mm. but um, he was he was reading one of his early novels. So because, oh wow, I'm such a fa- Wishbones is one of my favorites. I love it's great. Oh my god, is that so? It's really good. funny and really good. Yeah, um, I uh, and I think there been, it's been optioned several times. I don't know who owns it now, but yeah. Um, because it reads like a movie. It does. It does. You just the, the movie is running in your head yeah. as you're reading that book. Yeah. yeah. I just read one of his uh, part of the show. I I interview people, then I also have readings. I have people read comedy essays and excerpts from novels and short stories and long form articles. And I read a short story from Nine Inches, his short story collection that came out three, two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've read any of that, but it's just great. No. Just little perfect suburban milieu, you know, um, like frustrated young parents living in a suburb, that kind of stuff, which I don't know. I'm on a parent and I don't live in a suburb, but for some reason that stuff is very moving to me. Yeah, he does that well. He Uh, sure does. He's he's a great writer. Yeah, he's one of the best. No, I don't get get to read a lot just on my own or what I choose to read because I'm reading so much for work. So, and there's stuff that just demands my attention. So, is there yeah. is there certain genres that cross your so you so you get something in front of you crosses your desk, mm-hmm. and the question is Jeff is this something that we can turn into a television series right? Are there any genres that you don't like to read? You're like oh fuck I got to read this fucking spaceship. I, I hate spaceships. You know. You know it's <laughs> I I'll, I'll read pretty much anything. I I I'm not a. A, a big science fiction fan. I, but I, I when it's well done, I, I, sure. I like it a lot. Um, <clears throat> is there any genre? I, I, uh, I'm fairly you agnostic that way. I do read it all, and uh, it's you know it's part of the job to be able to sort of appreciate sure. what's good in that, whether it's young adult, which there are fewer opportunities for in television. I think for that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, a few of them, you know, they're out there. Um, like CW kind of shows like, yeah, yeah. But there, there are more opportunities for adult drama because of the number of the buyers that specialize in that uh, than there are for some of the other uh, things. And some of the programming is more niche than others in terms of, I mean, I guess the, where it starts in terms of, uh, uh, genre material, but I, um, no, I, I read pretty widely, so um, keep an open mind. How do you? How do you? Do you? Do you? Are there times of the day where you just you, you you say to your assistant, "Don't, no phone calls. I'm closing the door, yeah. and I am reading. This, the next three hours are is my time to figure out whether or not this is compelling material or not." Yes, or I do. You, I do do that. I mean, it's it's hard to read at the office, but it's it's you know yeah. I will shut my door. Um, also, part of the job is also reading a lot of uh, screenwriters and television writers and writing samples. So, oh, yeah. you know, because I've got to, I've got to know who to give the book to. Yeah, assuming that the author is not going to be the one to adapt it, and and they, you know, mm. in some cases that they are, but mostly not. So I have to be prepared um, in terms of who I'm going to turn this over to. Yeah. Um, so I have to be familiar with all of the people that are who you know, you, being current. And, yeah. Who are your favorites right now, current names, uh, screen, uh, sc- as far as screenwriters go, that are on your – that are like in your frontal lobe, that are sort of, God, I just really would love to find the perfect thing to pair with this writer. God, there's so many. I mean um, – 
Well, Sorkin is brilliant. Uh, sure. I can't wait to see the Steve Jobs movie. Yeah. I know it's going to be a, a treat. Um, oh, yeah. You know, who else is out there? I'm I'm lucky enough to be working with um, Richard Price right now, who just did an Whoa. adaptation of um, of one of our novels, and which we're turning into a limited series. So um, for for who, where and who? Well, we haven't sold God. it yet, so. Jeff. <laughs> but God we will damn. soon, I think. We um, did a, a book club for the Whites uh, a couple months ago. Uh huh. Holy shit, is he great? Wow. Yeah, he's a great writer. Wow. So, yeah. I'm, so I'm, it's not it's not official but it's not like an official thing, so I should uh, probably not talk God about it, it that much. But it's it's uh, it's noir, it's film noir, and it's a it's a limited series and I'm I'm really excited about it. Is it so. contemporary or is it like No, period? it's it's set in three different periods of time and uh and three different Ooh. noir styles and yeah. I think it'll be, I think it'll be great. It sounds like it would be great. I hope so. Wow. Uh, what about Eggers? Do you, are you a fan of Eggers? Do you read him? I read uh, Heartbreaking Work. Um, yeah, and uh, I, th- I was I was knocked out by the book. I thought it was incredible. Same here. And it, it was actually something that we took an interest in trying to do as a uh, something for television. And that was oh. one of those cases where it was, I think, um, simply too personal and too, um, you know, yeah, close to the vest. So uh, yeah. So he said no, which and that's you know, again that it was that's okay. Of course, have you read um, this Chad Harbash or Harback book called The Art of Fielding? I have not. Okay, I, I know of the book and yeah. I heard you know wonderful things about it. And I actually I thought that that book had ended up at HBO maybe, but um, uh, as a so movie or as a TV series, I who knows? I think it wouldn't have been as a movie probably. I, I, I don't know what they were planning on doing with it. Okay. I, again, that, that may not be accurate. God, it's so it's, it's well worth your time. I know you're busy reading everything else. <laughs> do you also do, do you read um, like children's content? Are you reading stuff to be like for PBS or Nickelodeon or that kind of stuff? Or no? A lot less. I mean, okay. It's that's a very specific business, and but there's um, money there, right? Yeah, there is, but less than you might think. So, really? Yeah, yeah. Dora um, the Explorer isn't making. Well, I'm of sure it is. Again, it's not. It's not really a business that um, you know. Uh, it's well, it's not something I, I I read a lot of and yeah. spend a lot of time trying to do. There is one thing that we're. Hoping to do uh, now. It's a little early to talk about, but but it would fall into that category of very young reader um, yeah. content that would be done as a as an animated series. Okay. What was the most recent thing that crossed your desk that you read that you just couldn't put down? That was. Uh, Gosh. Has uh, that happened recently? Um, I guess I wonder if I can talk. I I think I can. Yeah, uh, you can. You absolutely uh, can. <laughs> I'm sure of it, Sam. Yeah, he can. Okay, Sam said it's cool. Well, yeah, I think I can. As Scott Frank um, has uh, written a novel and uh, um, that Knopf is going to be publishing, and I um, and it's it's fantastic. Mm. He did a, a just an amazing job. He's a he's a screenwriter and a director, and um, uh, and this is his first novel, and it's uh, spectacular. Scott Frank. Yes. What is, do you know the name of the book? The book is called Shaker. Okay. And uh, is it out, or did you just no, sort of no, read no, no. It? it hasn't it hasn't been published. Published yet. yet? Yeah. So I, I read a lot of stuff that's galleys earlier, right? 
Manuscripts, um, yeah. Yeah. Did you see uh did you see the end of Tor, the uh the David Foster one? I haven't seen it no. yet. No, you no, you gotta see I, it. Yes. No, and, I, and I stay I stayed away from it because I'm a, such a huge fan of that of David Lipsky's book. Um and I'm a, I'm fascinated by Wallace and his his whole mystique. Um and it and it holds up. And I that's one of two books in my life that I've finished and then I start and I turn back to page one and start it again with a highlighter. I thought that book just blew blew me away. Really? Okay. And I brought a lot I brought a lot of baggage to the to that movie, but it's the movie is wonderful. And I'm also a big James Ponsell fan. I think he's a really talented. Yeah, I thought Spectacular writer. Now was great. Spectacular Now is an amazing movie. Um I won't I won't keep you too much, um, but I have just a couple other questions. Um in your brain, what are some of the best examples of books that have been adapted for television? I think of Empire Falls for uh, that HBO did. This is years ago, not yeah, too yeah, many yeah. years ago. Did it as a limited series? Yeah, and mm-hmm. I thought it was. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, it was very good. And the novel he, Richard Russo is a great writer. He's so. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good. Um, In your brain, what are some of your your favorites? I know I should have. Made a list here before I walked into this. This is what this podcast is about, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, gosh, uh, I'm gonna have to think about that. Um, okay. Are you a Stephen King uh, fan? He's not a Harper. He, we don't publish. I th- we have published him in the past. I think he's published by Scribner's. Yeah, I think King is oh. fantastic. Yeah. Um, I read when I was an executive. At Castle Rock, I remember reading Misery um, in oh. um, manuscript form, and I Whoa. could not put that down. Holy that was, cow! Yeah, it was. Um, it was really. Did amazing. you tell everyone in the office like I have something in my hand here that is going to be? Yeah, that's it's gonna. Not, it's not like you're saying a. You know, it's like, hey, I'm, this Stephen King's really good. Like, <laughs> you know, well, right. thanks. That's yeah. really helpful. Right. Um, it and I. I can't remember exactly what the circumstances were, but I just remember reading it and thinking it was yeah. um, just unputdownable. Yeah. Um, so, uh, just in. I'm trying to jog my mind of current television shows that that are from books. HBO. What about the um, the HBO series with Francis McDormand that won all the Emmys this year? Um, Olive Kittredge. Olive Kittredge. Yeah. Yeah, it was really beautifully done. I, yeah. you know, I, again, it was you know not something I had any involvement with, but yeah, um, yeah it was a really uh, it was a fine script. Um, Jane Anderson, I think, wrote the script, and um, uh, they they did a, a beautiful job with it. So yeah. Um, what was the most uh, appealing thing? I'll get you out on this question. Okay. The most appealing thing about taking this job, I'm assuming. It had a lot to do with you. I mean, it's the inception of this division, and you get to sort of form it in any way you'd like. Yeah, I, you know, again, it was a really, it was a, it was a, it was a really good fit because I, 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 first of all, I, I love to read. I really like the process of adaptation. I, I think that I, I'm good at. I'd like to think that I'm good at taking a book or. Um, you know, whether it's narrative nonfiction or fiction and saying this book, this screenwriter, you know, that director, you know, sort of putting the pieces together like a producer is supposed to. Yeah. And then seeing it through and working very closely with the writer 
um, on the adaptation, hopefully making it happen. Um, I've developed a, a number of m movies for the HBO Films Division, and um, yeah. so you know, and that's and that's part of the process in terms of working closely and developing those scripts and working on them, and uh, it's something I enjoy doing. So, yeah, um, uh, yeah, it was it was very appealing to come over and, and start this division and um, and. Uh, Fremantle Media, where we have our first look TV deal, has been very supportive of, of Random House and sees the value in um, having a, a company like ours be, uh, you know, having a producing deal with the company um, because we have access to all these books and yeah. a long institutional memory in terms of, you know, if a writer comes into the office and says, gee, I'd really like to find something like this. Inevitably, Penguin Random House, because it's this gigantic company, has published something in yeah. that area. So I can go back and find something, Reconstruction Era, sort of, you know, right. post-apocalyptic, yeah. whatever it might the be. And East find German something. Stasi Exa or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the editors in-house are supportive, you know, and know that we're this is what we're trying to do. Um and uh, so hopefully we'll, you know, we'll have some great success. I uh, sold a book recently to Showtime called Loving Day, this wonderful uh, novel by Matt Johnson and as a half-hour comedy. So that's a, a new thing that we're, we're, we're going to try to do. Is Matt Johnson uh, – have you paired him with a writer? Is he running that is, himself? That is exactly what I'm trying to do right now because it's a relatively new option. So – um, we're looking for a writer to work with Matt because he's going to write the pilot and but co-create it with um, with another writer. And uh, would you want someone, another writer who has show running experience? Yes. Would, okay. Yes. So that narrows the field a little a little bit. Yes. 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 I'll brainstorm and I'll get back <laughs> to you with some names. Jeff Thank Levine you. has been here. He's been chatting about the book business and the television build business and the development business, which is a fascinating part of the Hollywood machine that not a lot of people know about. Um, thanks so much for coming in and, and chatting. I it's really appreciate pleasure. it. my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. We've stocked up the Earwolf store with lots of stuff to wear, hang, or give this holiday season. Each sale supports our show, helps us employ a guy named Nick that ships all this stuff from a bunker in L.A., he must be a recluse, and helps you be extra festive this holiday season. Support Earwolf by visiting Earwolf.com, click shop, and get 10% off with the code HOLIDAY through December 11th. And if you want some reading aloud swag, it doesn't exist. But send them an email and tell them you want a reading aloud t-shirt, and I bet you they will make you one. Earwolf.com, 10% off with code HOLIDAY. Check it out. Act two of Reading Aloud is here, and I have a short story for you. I found this one, this little baby, in the um, collection, the Best American Short Story Collection. Every year they have one, and they have a different editor who assembles them every year. And this year's collection was edited by the great T.C. Boyle who I love. Uh, Drop City is like one of my favorite books. He's great. Uh, so T.C. Boyle assembled this collection of short stories and I went through most of them. I read like the first four or five pages of each of them and if I wasn't turned on, I just kind of moved on. This one held my attention uh, from beginning to end. It's really great. Uh, and 
It's written by Louise Erdrich. Erdrich? Erdrich. She won the National Book Award uh, for her novel in 2012 called The Round House. Uh, she wrote this short story that was published in The New Yorker last year, and I really loved reading it. It's great. It's called The Big Cat, and it's about love and marriage in Minneapolis. I think you'll dig it. So this is from The New Yorker. This is called The Big Cat, and it's by Louise Erdrich. The women in my wife's family all snored, and when we visited for the holidays every winter, I got no sleep. Elida's three sisters and their bomb-proof husbands loved to gather at her parents' house in Golden Valley, an inner ring suburb of Minneapolis. The house was less than 20 years old, but the sly tricks of the contractor were evident in every sagging sill, skewed jam, cracked plaster wall, tilted handrail, and most significantly in the general lack of insulation that caused the outer walls to ice up and the inside to resound. Every night the sounds were different. Helplessly cognizant, I formed mental scenarios while drifting in and out of sleep. One memorable night I tossed and turned in a metalworking shop. From the far end of the second floor hallway came the powerful rip of my mother-in-law's rough-cut saw. From below, on the living room fold-out couches, the intermittent thrum of welders' torches. A wild hissing as the sisters' noses sparked and soldered invisible objects. Beside me, Elida's finishing touch, the high-pitched burr of a polisher perfecting a metal surface. Elida was slight, and she dressed in precise, quiet colors. She sat with her hands folded, wore clear nail polish, and almost undetectable makeup. You would never have imagined that such a stark little person could produce such sounds. Ambient earplugs, two pillows over my head, nothing could shut the noise out. I lay awake stewing, even though I knew I should feel sorry for them. The sisters and their mother had visited sleep clinics, endured surgery, blown their CPAPs off their faces, tried every nose strip and homeopathic remedy that existed. It wasn't that they liked to snore, but that they were incurable. I thought they took comfort in solidarity, though. Elida admitted that she loved sleeping in that noisy house, and sometimes they snored in unison, which was terrifying. One sub-zero vacation morning, my daughter, Valerie, ran her finger across the ice-furred downstairs living room wall and asked, What is this, Daddy? Snores, I said, blue with tiredness. All the snores from last night have stuck to the walls. Later, after her mother and I had divorced, Valerie wistfully recalled that moment as the first time she realized how alive with sound the night was and that all the noise emanated from the women in the family. Later still, she asked her mother at what age she'd begun to snore and asked me if that was the reason we'd split up. Valerie was worried for her own future. I assured her that snoring had had nothing to do with a divorce, which was amicable but also unavoidably painful. I laughed and hugged Valerie. I even told her that I had adored her mother's snores. I had never adored them, but I had adored Elida, almost to the point of madness, from the first time we met. We found each other in Hollywood 
as Minnesotan expatriates always do, common sense driving them together. Though to leave the land of 10,000 lakes for a thirsty city built on a desert may speak of some interior flaw. For Elida, it was the compulsive lore of film editing. In my case, the shame of acting. Although I auditioned endlessly and always had work, my parts generally lasted between 6 and 12 seconds. I rarely had a line. But I had Elida. Her intense green stare, her Nordic pallor, even after years of sunlight, her slender gliding walk, and the dark swerve of her severe haircut. She was mine. When Valerie turned 12, I was cast in a supporting role in a movie that got a lot of attention. It could have been my fabled break, but Elida suddenly panicked over how unhappy Valerie was in high school and decided that the schools in Minneapolis were more nurturing. We moved back. I had to accept the fact that my film career was over. I'd worked steadily and spoken a line or two, given many a meaningful glance, tripped villains, sucker-punched heroes, spilled coffee on or danced around movie stars and revolving doors. I had appeared in dozens of films, TV episodes, commercials. But Elida hadn't been doing well, and both of us got better, more reliable jobs back home. Elida loved the minuscule, the hundreds of tiny decisions that together produce a great flow of scenes. She applied this love of detail to her new vocation, planning corporate events. I also loved the small, when it consisted of learning to say lines a dozen different ways with different tonal qualities, inflections, and gestures. In my new job as a fundraiser for a vibrant local theater company, I perfected the gestures and tones that I hoped would coax donations to my organization. For my birthday that year, perhaps to console me for the life I'd given up, Elida somehow managed to clip and splice together a half-hour movie of my bit parts, which she set to eerily repetitive music. Shortly after she gave me that gift, which she titled Man of a Thousand Glimpses, we parted. I moved out of our downtown condominium near nurturing De La Salle High School. For the first couple of months after leaving Elida, I bolted out of work at exactly 4 p.m. I drove to my tiny apartment impatiently, hungrily, addicted not to a new relationship, but to sleep itself. Deep rest was a drug. Waking from relaxed oblivion, I vibrated with an almost tear-inducing pleasure. Why shoot up, I wondered, when just by depriving the body of uninterrupted sleep for 20 years, you can have ecstasy with no side effects? Except, it might be said, for Lorene. It took no time at all before I was sleeping the entire night beside a woman whom I feared I had married too quickly because she slept like a drunken kitten. From the beginning, I had to consciously keep myself from referring to Lorene in casual conversation as, quote, my current wife. Though it was taken as a joke, I knew better. It was a slip. Lorene Schatz was the daughter of the owner of an immensely successful Midwestern sporting goods chains, with outlets in the ex-est of the ex-burbs throughout the tri-state area. 
She was also a lover of the theater arts. At the annual gala dinner for my theater company, which Elida organized pro bono the year we parted, Lorene spoke between the salad and the entree. Her flattering words of thanks to our supporters, which screened a plea for still greater largesse, impressed me with her genuine, awkward grace. Lorene reveled in that sort of gala where people bid on donated items, the use of timeshares in warm countries, fur coats, ski packages, sign books, hand-painted scarves. Scarves draped our chairs, and we took superb vacations. Lorene was blonde, social, generous, and loved to barbecue. Elida was dark, wayward, introverted, frugal, and usually a vegetarian. Lorene could drink a whole bottle of cold Pinot Gris between 5 and 6 p.m. Elida might sip one murderous, snore-inducing glass of Cotarone between 11 and 12 midnight. After the divorce, Elida and I met once a month to discuss Valerie. We had agreed to do this early on, even when it hurt to see each other. Every time after we had wincingly established where Valerie's college tuition would come from or whether she need a new therapist after Elida had confided the latest news of Valerie's boyfriend, who we both hoped would turn out to be simply experience, we would conclude the hour with a cheerful goodbye, perhaps saying, that wasn't so bad, or even, good to see you. We laughed in relief. We hugged, patted each other on the back, and sometimes drank a cup of tea before the drive home. We never kissed, not even on the cheek. Our divorce had been agreeable and final. Our post-divorce meetings were lingering, tedious, and self-congratulatory. Once Lorene and I were married, however, the meetings with Elida became more difficult. The boyfriend had turned into a problem. We suspected an addiction. We also began, without any warning, to fight It would start with some obscure thing and progress to even more obscure things. By the end of our meetings, Elida and I were worn out. Then, after one particularly difficult session, still upset as we were saying goodbye, Elida, instead of hugging me, stuck out her hand. I took her hand and held on to it until she met my eyes. Her glare pulled me to her, and I shocked us both by kissing her studious pale lips. We jumped apart as though scorched and turned away. We didn't speak of it. Our next meeting was set up by email, and I found myself walking eagerly toward Nick's, a restaurant off Loring Park, which was quiet and decorous by day with leather booths and gauzy curtains that let in flowing white rafts of winter light. Elida was sitting at the third booth in and raised a hand as I entered, then put a tissue to her eyes. She had been crying, a rare event. It usually meant, frighteningly, that she'd had some breakthrough realization about me that she'd repressed for years. Warily, I asked her what was wrong. She told me that Valerie had started snoring. Her boyfriend had left her, thank goodness, but now Valerie was refusing to believe that her mother's snoring hadn't precipitated our divorce. Of course it didn't. Maybe not. We had other issues. Who doesn't? Twenty good years. One bad year. A thousand little issues came home to roost. I thought, you know, because of those good years, we might still get back together, Elida said. Until Lorene. She doesn't snore, right? 
I admit is as much. Ah. Elida turned to look out the window, and her dark glinting hair swung sorrowfully alongside her cheek. The first time we spent the night together. Hmm. St. George Street. I warned you I snored. I'd already been to the specialists and had surgery, which only made it worse. It's almost a relief to sleep alone now. At least I'm not blasting a man out of bed. I never minded. I thought of the couch in Los Feliz that had wrecked my back, the walk-in closet with a floor pallet in our Minneapolis condominium. I'd adjourned to these lonely sleeping venues on most nights. I did mind, but her fixed gaze shook my heart. Last month you kissed me. I did. We grew perplexed, ate in silence, each secretly examining the other's face from time to time. I was very conscious of the drama of the situation. Any former actor would have been. Elida sussed that out. You're trying on expressions, she said, laughing. It was true. Various expressions crossed my face, but none felt right. The elements wouldn't meld. My eyes would express affection while my mouth was tense. Surprise would lift an eyebrow while my upper lip worked cynically. Embarrassment smote me. At least that was real. I put my face in my hands and tried to breathe, but my hands covering my mouth made me hyperventilate. When I looked up, Elida was signing the credit card slip. She folded her napkin. Don't get up, she said. From now on, let's do a phone call or email. I really hate email, I said, for personal stuff. Please sit down. We can solve this. She sat down. Irrationally elated, I ordered a bottle of wine. This is a bad idea, Elida said. Why? We can talk. How are the ripsaw and the welders? <laughs> Elida knew my nicknames for her mothers and sisters. Ha! <laughs> she clinked my glass. What was I again? The polisher. I don't even mind that, she said. It's in my line of work, really. I miss you. Maybe we should have an affair where we see each other only by day and never sleep together, you know, at night. She was speaking whimsically, but we proceeded to do exactly that. We were extremely happy for ten months. To be sure, I felt bad about lying to Lorene, but she noticed nothing. She made few demands, seemed happy enough with my company, and continued to barbecue, even in December. Meanwhile, Valerie had left for college, and Elida and I were meeting in our old condominium, overlooking the poison brown waters of the Mississippi. Then one afternoon we were dressed, sipping tea, looking out the river, when Valerie dropped her suitcase inside the door. She was astonished to see us sitting there. She gaped silently for a moment, then clumped down the hall in her big snow boots. Elida gave me an oddly insolent look. You can live with a person, have an affair with a person, and still suddenly see an unfamiliar flash like the belly of a fish in the shallows, there and gone. She had known exactly when our daughter would arrive home. Valerie screamed when she saw the untucked covers of our bed, the scattered pillows. She clumped back into the living room. How long has this been going on? We told her. She began to sob. All this time? How selfish! Mean! I, I, I could have had you both together. Instead, I've been trying to get used to you apart. I was facing the facts and then... 
She pressed her mittened hands to her temples, as if to keep her head from flying apart. We all started crying and for a while felt miserable. Then Elida snorted, and we burst into hysterical laughter. It was decided that I would come clean and leave Lorene Schatz. Elida and I would remarry. Although it was strange, the idea gave me an enormous sense of rightness. Things were falling into balance. My elation continued all the way back to Lorraine's and my house on Interlochen Boulevard in Hopkins facing the golf course, a beautiful stone house with creamy painted walls, a wet bar in the basement, and a vast screening room for movie viewing parties. Sitting in my car and looking up the flagstone walk, I thought of the pallet on the floor of the condominium's walk-in closet. I would regret leaving this lavish, comfortable house bought with Lorene Schott's money. I would regret leaving Lorene, too, the silent comfort of her presence every night. Lorene pitched a majolica vase, then a framed photograph of us in Peru. She threw a few other breakable objects at the wall, and at last hefted a crystal unicorn she'd had since the age of ten. You'll regret throwing that, I said. Please don't. I'm so sorry. Dad was right. Tears rolled down her face onto her collar, wet in her throat. I was stricken. I couldn't stop apologizing. Never before had I seen her truly upset or sad. Dad was right, she said again. He said you were after the money. He didn't trust you. A former bit part actor. He begged me to make you sign a prenup. But I said, no, you're so wrong. He's the one. Because I had little money and because money hadn't figured into my first marriage, except for the problem of not having it, I was until that moment unaware that this had ever been discussed. I put it on my mind and didn't think about it until a month later. I had moved out of Lorene's house into a studio apartment. I continued to see Elida only during the day. I wasn't quite ready for the walk-in closet. Are you crazy? Elida said, putting down her teacup one afternoon, after I told her the proposed terms of my divorce. That family is worth more than a hundred million. You could get a settlement. They never even miss it. I waved her off, but every time I thought about how handy, how fantastic it would be to have money, I wavered. With my nonprofit salary, I could barely afford to soundproof Valerie's old bedroom. I told myself that I'd keep my pride and sleep on the closet floor. I'd walk away without a cent. But I didn't, of course. We bought the condominium next door and removed two walls. This gave us an easy path into a large room where I set up a huge screen. Before it, we arranged several couches of immense size and comfort. I slept there in grateful quiet. I didn't take Lorene for that much, comparatively speaking, and the Schatz family was relieved. Still, they hated me enough to threaten for a while to get me fired. One night, Elida surprised me by playing the montage of clips she'd made for my birthday years earlier. It was worse, somehow, seeing on that giant screen bought with Lorene's money. There I was, my trivial works captured for the ages— I hadn't noticed when I first viewed the movie that Elida had made of those fleeting cameos and set pieces a sort of narrative. 
Man of a thousand glimpses started out with crowd scenes. Me here, me there, the nice-looking, unobtrusive bystander reading a newspaper, glancing up at the sound of a gunshot, the man crossing a street, exiting a bakery, jumping into his car, uncoiling a hose to water his lawn. Next, a better man appeared, somewhat older, more heroic. I ran toward a river with a child in my arms. I was a soldier dragging his buddy to safety. I lowered a dog in a basket from a burning building, addressed people through a bullhorn, rushed into waves, and dived toward despairing arms. After that, I became a good father, inflated bicycle tires, opened refrigerator doors, lay back smiling in my late-night shopper's easy chair, had my waist measured, drove several carloads of screaming kids to sports matches. Small wonder I then got a pounding headache, clutched my jaw, my leg, my heart, wincing in agony. Next, there came a turning point, which had been much applauded at the first viewing. I smoked a cigarette in a cheap hotel, a beautiful woman silhouetted in the shower behind me. Afterward ruined, I poured myself drink after drink, ordered a third martini, fell off a bar stool, crawled under a table, and licked a woman's ankle. I sank even lower, stuck a gun in a teller's face, took cash from the drawer of a fast food register. I palmed an apple from a pile, stole a moped, a diamond bracelet, a newspaper. These crimes kept me tossing in bed. I stared at ceilings, my eyes luminous, hollow with glare, haunted by ghosts, by women, by hallucinations. Sleepless, I got clumsy. I was hit by a car, crushed by a falling girder, devoured by a live volcano, axed, mauled, infected with bubonic plague. I was identified several times in liverish green morgue light by stricken, dignified women. It was shocking the way I just kept on dying, physically, then mentally. A wreck of a man, I leaped from a bridge, a window. I parked on train tracks and drank deeply from a flask. I smiled at the swiftly approaching lights and laughed soundlessly. The end. Elida left. I played the movie over and over. How dark was my narrative? Why had Elida killed me off instead of letting me rescue dogs at the end? This downward trajectory gave me a moral chill. I decided that I had not only wasted my life, but had acted ignobly in taking money from Lorene. Although Elida and I had made Valerie happy and I'd thought I was contented with Elida, I knew now, as I'd known before, the nature of her true feelings for me. I destroyed the movie. It would be years before anyone noticed that my long-ago birthday gift had disappeared and I was once again dispersed into the confetti of B-movies, failed TV sitcoms, and clumsy commercials. No one would ever have the cruel patience to assemble my life glimpse by glimpse again. When the holidays came around, I insisted that we stay at the house in Golden Valley. Why not? I had already counted a million holes and a million ceiling tiles. The first night at Elida's parents' house, we all had a mirthful, loving dinner, then did the dishes together. Elida's relatives had easily absorbed me back into the family, where my role, though peripheral, was also vital, because I was Valerie's father. After we turned in, 
and Elida fell asleep beside me, I lay on my back, waiting. It usually took her an hour or so to really get going, but her sisters and her mother had already begun. Valerie and a girl cousin had sneaked a bottle of wine into their sleeping bags and were now drifting off next door. The real snoring hit with abrupt ferocity. The orderly mechanical regularity of the metalworking shop had been abandoned. Now it was more like a pack of wolves snarling over a kill. I closed my eyes. On my mental screen, I saw lions driving the wolves, or hyenas maybe, into the veld. On a hill overlooking the bloody feast, a baboon whooped. For many hours, I elaborated on the vivid images that accompanied the soundtrack. A lioness whirring the leg off a carcass. Two others feeding off a male, raking his ribs with teeth and claws while their cubs mock fought nearby. At last, I dropped off. In the deepest part of the night, I woke. Although Elida's snarls had calmed to the loud, gurgling purr of a big cat digesting prey meat, I came to in a sick sweat, shaking. Perhaps my imagined scenario had triggered some terror from my evolutionary past. I had dreamed that I was the hunted animal, thrown to earth, being eaten alive. The tearing of my flesh the snap of jaws wrestling at my bones, the blissful lapping as my throat opened. All this seemed absolutely real to me. It took some time for me to understand that Elida's body had not been satiated on mine, that she wasn't purring because she swallowed my heart. The Big Cat by Louise Erdrich Uh, which was from originally in The New Yorker, and then I found it in the Best American Short Stories of 2014, 2015 collection that was edited by T.C. Boyle. You can find that in any of your local bookstores. Go pick it up. It's a great collection. Every year I try to get it, and it's really this. all the stories sort of span a very wide spectrum. So if you don't like one, you can just move on, and it's very likely that you'll like the next one. Um, so thank you so much, Louise, for allowing me to read that. Um, and big thanks to Jeff Levine for coming in and talking about the business of books. Fascinating stuff. I always wonder how that world is compiled and who makes these decisions and who's difficult and who's not difficult and what makes it on the big screen and what doesn't. Um, so thanks so much to Jeff for coming in. To you, I have two pieces of homework. Go get Station Eleven. And check it out. And then join us for the book club. It's in two weeks. We'll see you then. And also, come see us. The live show approaches. It's next weekend. Sunday, December 13th at 7.30 at the UCB Franklin. Great cast. Come and check us out. It's the last live show for a while. So I would love to see you there. My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of Reading Aloud. Thanks so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Here's five reasons to listen to Who Charted. Number five, Howard. It sounded fantastic. It sounded big and bombastic. Number four, Cool Up. Oh, my God. 
said number three. Start. Are you serious? Don't wait. Number two. Guest. And my real name is not Kether Donahue. I'm in the witness protection program. Number one. The charts. If they could keep this promise that it really was the last witch hunter, I might be interested. <laughs> Check out Who Charted every Wednesday at Earwolf.com or your favorite podcast app. Charts. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.